Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20? For those of you who are new, welcome. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We have come to chapter 20, which basically chronicles for us the people Jesus appeared to on the Sunday of his resurrection. Now, we've already looked at the people Jesus appeared to that Sunday morning and afternoon, and now we've focused our attention on those he appeared to that evening in the upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, although one disciple was gone. One disciple was not there at that moment. It was Thomas. And so John 20 then records how that a week later, eight days later, uh, as they were all gathered together in that upper room, Jesus appeared again. Let's pick up uh, the uh, passage, first of all, with verse 19. John 20, 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, we've already studied verses 19 through 22, and we kind of focused on verse 21 as the uh, kind of the theme verse of this passage. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I also send you. This is what we call the Great Commission. The other gospel writers Uh, expanded it a little bit. Matthew records that Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone you come in contact with, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit when they are converted, and then go on to teach them all things I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Now guys, this great commission was given by Jesus, listen, to all of his disciples, not just the ones in that upper room uh, the night of his resurrection. Yeah, it started there, but it spread to his entire church, of course, as we have uh, studied numerous times. And uh, as I said, we kind of put verse 23 on the side until we finished, uh, you know, looking at the other verses in this passage. But as I said, verse 23 has been used by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, so I'm not some rabid Protestant just out to bash the Catholic Church every chance I get. Uh, but verse 23 has been used by the Roman Catholic Church to teach that right here Jesus gave Catholic priests the authority to hear confessions and forgive sins. But did he? But did he? Is that true? Let me just say this, when it comes to hearing confessions and forgiving sins, Jesus never practiced hearing confessions in the Gospels. Now, certainly people confessed their sins to him. It comes to mind Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You know, and Zacchaeus did confess, and I will return fourfold to whomever I have cheated and so on. All right? I'm not saying he never heard anybody confessing sins to him. 
He just didn't set up a box in the in the in the neighborhood where people lined up and one at a time went in and confessed their sins. He didn't do it that way. Uh, he didn't make it a practice to make that uh, you know something he did on a regular basis. Number two, the apostles never heard confessions in the Book of Acts. You study the Book of Acts, you don't see anywhere where the apostles had people lining up when they came to different areas, lining up to confess their sins. And then finally, the practice of hearing confessions for the forgiveness of sins was never taught or even mentioned in the epistles. So the church never practiced this, this idea of the clergy hearing confessions and forgiving sins. So what is Jesus saying in John 20, verse 23? Let me read it again. Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And again, guys, don't read too much into this. Jesus is not giving his disciples the power to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. Two, two uh, references, many others. Mark 2, verse 7, Daniel 9, verse 9. You can run with those and uh, do your own digging. But um, Jesus never gave his disciples the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sin. Uh, when it comes to properly interpreting the Bible, we're trying to figure out, well, what is Jesus actually saying then? When it comes to properly interpreting the Bible, uh, someone has said there are three cardinal rules. Context, context, context. What is the context? That's key. Context is key. And understanding, especially if you're dealing with a controversial passage, well, what is the context, first of all? The context, as we just said, is the Great Commission. It's the Great Commission. The idea that Jesus is sending them out, that's the context. They're going to be taking over for him. As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you, right? So Jesus began the Great Commission and is now turning that work over to his church. But is he giving them the power to forgive sins or not to forgive sins? Well, look, at this point, I think commentator and author Warren Worsby has something important that we should hear. He said, and I quote, a correct understanding of the Greek text helps us here. Some years ago, I corresponded with the eminent Greek scholar, Dr. Julius R. Manti, about this verse. And he assured me that the correct translation both here and in Matthew 16, verse 19 should be, quoting Manti, whoever's, wh whosoever's, excuse me, whosoever sins you remit, forgive, shall have already been forgiven them. And whosoever sins you retain, do not forgive, shall have already not been forgiven them. Words be said, in other words, the disciples did not provide forgiveness. They simply proclaimed forgiveness on the basis of each person receiving or rejecting the message of the gospel, end quote. Let me recap quickly. I believe what Jesus is telling his disciples, and that would include, again, all of us who are his disciples. I believe what he was telling his disciples is that they were going to now go out into the world continuing the ministry he had begun, preaching the gospel, 
uh, to everyone they can, came in contact with, filling, fulfilling the Great Commission, which again, he started and was now turning over to them, as my Father has sent me, I am now sending you. If, as they're going into the world, sinners receive the good news of God's forgiveness and salvation, if they repent and believe on Jesus Christ as their Savior, Jesus Christ was authorizing them to inform them, your sins have now been forgiven. Now you say, well, it's not a little obvious. Well, it is for us 2,000 years after Jesus gave this commission. We got 2,000 years of studying Christian doctrine. You've got to understand something. They're going into the pagan world. And the gods, they didn't believe were so sympathetic towards people. The pagans did. And now here you got a gospel where a God, the God of all that created all things, not only doesn't want human sacrifice, he came down, became a man, and died for us fallen sinners. That was a lot to comprehend. It was a lot to chew on, we would say, right? And they needed to know what we call obvious. They needed to know if you receive Jesus Christ who came down from heaven to die for your sins and the third day rose again, he has commissioned me to tell you that your sins, because God has forgiven you, your sins are forgiven. If anyone rejects the gospel in favor of some pagan deity they want to continue serving, then and, and they think they're fine, because after all, my God's just as good as your God. Jesus said, you're authorized to say to them, no, there's only one way to God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. And he has told me, authorized me to tell you, your sins are not forgiven. No matter what you do as a Catholic, no matter how many candles you light or rosaries you pray or whatever else you do, that's what we were taught. But he wants us to know as we go out, and there's still a lot of, we have entered into a post-Christian era in our country. We're back almost in first century paganism in America. So many people don't have any idea what the gospel is. We need to let them know that God loves them, Jesus died for them, and now I have been authorized to represent him. To go into the world, give you the good news, if you receive it, your sins are forgiven through his blood. If you reject the gospel, your sins are retained. And if you die in that unforgiven condition, you will spend eternity apart from God in hell. He doesn't want that. He loves you. That's why he sent his son to keep you from hell. That if you want to hold on to your unbelief, I can do no more for you. And so on. All right? Now, that, at this point, we move from the nature of forgiveness to the nature of unbelief. Uh, look at John 20, starting with verse 24. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see... Uh, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut. And at this point, I think the disciples would have said, Oh, Lord, will you stop doing that? Just walking through the wall, you're scaring us. But they were shut in that room again. Doors being shut, stood in the midst and said to them, Jesus did peace to you. 
Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas, uh, and, and Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Why was Thomas not with the other disciples when they met a week earlier in the upper room the night Jesus was resurrected? Well, we don't know. Um, I'm wondering if he was so disappointed, so defeated, so discouraged by the death of Jesus that he had lost all hope, all hope for the future and didn't even want to be around his closest friends. We, we can fall into that kind of depression, can't we? These guys had pinned everything to Jesus. He was going to save the nation. He was going to establish the kingdom. I mean, they had invested everything in him. And now he's dead, at least in Thomas's mind, because Thomas wasn't there to see he, he was risen. And I think Thomas could have been so broken, so devastated, that he didn't want to be around anybody, so he isolated himself. But that's the worst thing you could do. Somebody has said solitude only feeds dis excuse me solitude only feeds discouragement and helps it grow into self pity which is even worse. That's why God said, "Do not forsake the fellowship of the saints, especially when you're down, especially when you don't want to be around anybody. That's the time to get to church on Sunday, midweek." We need each other. I need you to encourage me. You need me at times to encourage you. There are times that I need the fellowship of God's saints more than any other time. And that time is when I'm going through a difficult period. And don't you know the devil is all over me with conviction, with the uh, condemnation and accusation and so on. We need each other. But the devil pushes those buttons and tells us, you don't want to be around anybody. And we listen to that. And then he can beat us up even more in private. What about Thomas? Now, I think Thomas was a good guy. Don't get me wrong. But we get the impression from Thomas that he seems to have been kind of a pessimistic fellow. In other words, he tended to be negative and didn't receive the testimony of others so quickly. He needed to see it for himself, all right? We call, uh, the, the, we call him Doubting Thomas, but Jesus did not rebuke him for his doubts. He rebuked him for his unbelief. There's a difference. He said, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Worsby said, and I quote, Doubt is often an intellectual problem. We want to believe. But our faith is overwhelmed by problems and questions. God never has a problem with our doubts. Doubts just mean I need, I want to believe I need a little more information. God can deal with that. God encourages that. Unbelief, words be said, is a moral problem. Willful unbelief is a moral problem. We simply will not believe. And if you look at verse 25, when Thomas said, unless I can, you know, 
put my finger in the nail prints in his hand and my hand in the spear wound in his side. He says at the end of verse 25, I will not believe. In the Greek, it's a double negative. I absolutely will not. No way am I going to believe. So he's pretty adamant. Pretty adamant. What was it that Thomas would not believe? Well, we just mentioned it. He refused to believe the testimony of the other disciples that Jesus was alive. The verb said in verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord, in the Greek means that those disciples kept saying to him, Thomas, the Lord's alive. I don't, I don't believe it. No, no, really, he's alive. They kept repeating it, right? And Thomas kept saying, I don't buy it. I don't believe it unless I can see it with my own eyes. Look, if it was just a matter of personal anecdotes, I'd be on Thomas's side. If it was, if Jesus had never promised he was going to rise from the dead, and all Thomas had to go on was the disciples' testimony that they had seen the risen Christ, I'd be on Thomas's side because it would be like somebody telling me, "Phil, you got to receive Jesus because I know he's true because he changed my life." That's great, and I'm not not taking what you're saying into account at all but i need a little more i need some some empirical evidence of some kind a lot of that for the resurrection we've talked about that in detail but where thomas fumbled the ball you might say Jesus had told these guys in the last 6 months of his ministry as they were slowly working their way to jerusalem and the cross. He had told them three, possibly four times, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to wicked men. They're going to crucify me, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. So see, Thomas didn't just have personal testimony. He had the word of the living God that this was going to be a reality. That's where he made his mistake. Look, it's not wrong to want evidence or proof that something is real before you believe it. Even Acts uh, 1 verse 3 tells us that our faith is built on many infallible proofs, right? One of the problems with Thomas, though, we just gave you one. Another one, it's not wrong to want evidence, okay? If you don't have a promise of God, but, but okay. But one of the problems with Thomas wasn't so much that he wanted some proof of Jesus' resurrection before he would believe. It was that he laid down, listen, conditions for the Lord to meet before he was willing to believe. It would be like someone saying, well, I'll believe in Jesus when he does this or that for me. If he allows me to win the lottery, then I'll believe in him. Again, evidence is not wrong. Wanting evidence is not wrong. But the kind of faith that has conditions attached to it before a person will believe in Jesus is sinful 
because it treats God like a trained servant who must jump through my hoops before I will bless him with my faith. That is misguided at best and wicked at worst, depending on you know, the condition of your heart in that regard. Uh, guys, Thomas is called the twin in the Gospels, which means he had a twin brother or sister somewhere, um, and yet we're never introduced to Thomas's twin in the New Testament. I think the Holy Spirit did that on purpose. Say, so what do you mean? Well, we know who Thomas's twin is. You say, how do you know that? How do we know that? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Look, every one of us who are brothers and sisters of Thomas, saved, act like his twin at times. Many of us have walked with Jesus for years as his disciples. And yet we still demand that God, listen, prove himself to us first by healing us or uh, providing for us or working the situation out before I'm going to really believe his word can be trusted. We don't say it like that. But when crisis arises, tribulation, adversity, we have God's word. We know it. We've been Christians for years. And yet the flesh gets in there, and we want God to prove to us his word is really trustworthy by doing the miracle or the healing or providing first. Then, my faith is strengthened. But God has to act first before I can trust that his word is valid. Um, like Thomas, we seem to cling to the motto, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing, which is blatant unbelief on display. Um, again, if Jesus hadn't told these guys, if they didn't have his word, his promise, that he was going to rise from the dead, I could understand Thomas is doubting. But he had a promise from God, as we do. Peter says, we have many great and precious promises given to us by God. Look, you, you remember the story, because it reminds me kind of the, of the story in Matthew chapter 14. Why don't you turn there? Now, I want to pick it up in verse 22, but the background is Jesus has just fed the 5,000 with a small amount of food, um, you know, you know, uh, five barley crackers and a couple of pickled fish, just a couple of sardines, that kind of thing. Multiplied that little bit of food and fed 5,000 men plus women and children, so maybe 15, 20,000 people that day. So now, verse 22, immediately after that, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the what? Other side. Another gospel says, he told them to get into the boat and cross over to the other side. That was a command. Okay? Take, remember that. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this, right? So he told them to cross over to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up, went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind is contrary. The Greek word for contrary is where we get our word uh, earthquake from. These guys were professional fishermen. They made their living on the Sea of Galilee. This storm freaked them out. It was that bad, okay? It was that bad. They were terrified. Verse 25, now in the fourth watch of the night, that would be between 3 and 6 a.m. They have been struggling on that sea for at least six hours by this time. Trying to obey the Lord to cross over, right? Verse 26, and when the disciples saw, I'm sorry, verse 25, now in the fourth watch, watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. The Greek literally says, I am. Now, John has used that, that that's the name of God. John built his entire gospel around seven I am statements of Jesus. We've, we've looked at that numerous times. You remember how God told Moses to go to Pharaoh to tell him to let my people go, God said. And Moses said, well, you know, who do I tell Pharaoh is sending me? I don't even know your name. And he said, you tell him I am is sending you. It's the name of God. And so what Jesus said was, guys, be of good cheer. Remember me? I'm God. I made this sea. I made everything. I told you to cross over to the other side. If I tell you to cross over, you're not going to go under. And then Peter said, well, if it's really you, let me get out of the boat and walk to you. And Jesus said, what? One word. Come. So why was Peter scared? When he started to walk on water and saw the size of the waves and began to freak out what am i doing i can't walk on water and he took his eyes off of jesus began to sink and cried out lord save me and jesus reached out his hand verse 31 uh immediately caught him and said to him to peter oh you of little faith why did you doubt i told you to come to me peter i'm not going to let you go under if i've given you a direct command come cross over if God gives to you a command to do something, God's commandments are always God's enablements. He will always make sure you have the power that you need to fulfill the command he has given you. When God called me into ministry, I've told you this story. I was absolutely terrified because, as most of you know, I've got an incredible fear of public speaking. I couldn't get up in front of my classes when I was younger. High school, I couldn't read a report in front of the class. I just, I, my mouth would go dry. My heart would be beating like crazy. I'd have a full-blown anxiety attack. So when God called me into ministry, I thought, Lord, are you, I felt like Gideon. Lord, me? Mary Gideon said to the angel, you, you got the right address? You're asking me to deliver the, my people? I'm nobody. Well, that's good. God uses nobodies. He uses the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. 
to do his greatest work through so that when he does work, he gets all the glory. But whom the Lord calls, he does what? He equips. He called me and he equipped me. Well, it wasn't immediate. So a lot of times I would have an anxiety attack as I was going up to the pulpit or while I was in the pulpit. I just kept praying. I just kept falling on God, his grace. Lord, you've called me. You have to equip me. And as time went on, he slowly took that fear away. And But it's all him. Whatever God's calling you to do, he's going to equip you. You don't have to fear. Just trust him. If you have a promise that he has given to you, cling to it. Cling to it. So verse 32, when they got into the boat, excuse me, what, what, Peter, why do you doubt? Uh, you know, verse 32, and when they, Jesus and Peter, got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. God lets us go through the storms of life, not to destroy us, but to build us, that we might come away with knowing he's really God. Wow. Only God could have gotten me out of this mess. Only God could have come through for me like this. You fill in the blanks. Something else I think Warren Worsby uh, brought up that I think is, is worth mentioning. He said, Thomas is a good warning to all of us not to miss meeting with God's people on the Lord's Day, be in church on Sunday. Because Thomas was not there, he missed seeing Jesus Christ, hearing his words of peace, and receiving his commission and gift of spiritual life. He had to endure a week of fear and unbelief when he could have been experiencing joy and peace. Remember, Thomas, when you are tempted to stay home from church, you never know what special blessing you might miss, end quote. I'll just leave that with you. <laughs> now, this whole story in John 20 with regard to Thomas reminds me of something that took place earlier in Jesus' ministry recorded in John 4, if you turn there. And I'll show you, they're very different stories, but they do dovetail together. So, John 4, starting with verse 46. So, Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there, he was, there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, miracles, you will by no means believe. It was a little short. Jesus, the guy's kid is dying. It seems a bit harsh. But look, some people just have to see God do a miracle of some kind. They have to see at least something dramatic done by God before they'll believe. And if God caters to that, then it's going to reinforce that desire for the next time. So the next time they're going to want to see God do a miracle or something dramatic before they're going to believe. 
And God wants the reverse to be true. He wants us to believe first his, in him and his promises, and then comes the healing or the, uh, the answer to the prayer or whatever it is you're going through. I just said, as I just said a minute ago, the world and even many Christians have a motto that they love to quote, you know, seeing is believing. But God says just the opposite. Believing is seeing. But Jesus took it even a step further when he said to Thomas in John 20, verse 29, blessed are those who believe without seeing. You know, you all know Hebrews 11, verse 1. Let me read it to you out of the NIV, where, where Paul said, Now, faith is, is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Let me ex paraphrase, or let me explain it. Faith is always connected, biblical faith, to a promise of God. You can't believe God's going to do something if he hasn't promised he's going to do it, if you seek him. Now, he might do it. He might do something for you that he hasn't promised in his word. He might give you a new car. He might uh, do this or that, uh, whatever it might be. But he hasn't promised that. Therefore, you can't, you know, claim it and believe by faith it's going to happen. A promise, of course you can. And the writer is saying faith is confidence in what we hope for. What do we hope? We hope for God's promises to be fulfilled. And for the assurance, and the assurance for what we do not see. True biblical faith is believing without a shadow of a doubt when God has promised this, he's going to come through. And in fact, I believe it so strongly, I'm going to start acting as if it's come to pass already. I haven't seen the fulfillment yet, but it's as good as done because God's promises. So I'm going to start praising him. I'm going to start thanking him. It's as good as done. God promised it, right? That's the kind of faith that God honors. That's the kind of faith that he loves. Not the kind of faith that says, well, Lord, I know you promised this in your word, but I don't know if I can trust you. You know? Come on. But there's a lot of people in Christian circles like this today that, you know, seeing is believing kind of a thing. They've gotten hooked on seeing signs and wonders before they believe, and as such, they now crave them like, you know, addicts craving their next fix. When Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, uh, the word wonders there means miracles, you will by no means believe. He used uh, The word he uses for, for wonders is the Greek word tarada. I bring that up because it's important. Tarada. Unless you people see signs and taradas, you, you won't believe. This word stresses the awe, the excitement, the exhilaration. We would say it expresses the rush of adrenaline that seeing a miracle performed produces in those who witness it. In other words, Jesus uses a word that implied these people were nothing more than thrill seekers, miracle junkies. Those who wanted to see miracles simply for the rush they got. There wasn't really anything spiritually deeper in it. There, there was no, you know, they wanted to see miracles because there was an end in mind. Is Jesus really God so I can believe in him? Or something like that. 
They just wanted to rush. Now, apparently, Jesus, knowing this man's heart, this father whose son was sick, knew that he was thinking along these lines, if he, Jesus, does this miracle and heals my son, then I'll believe in him. As I said earlier, many people feel the same way today. If God comes through for me and heals me or, or my loved one of cancer, then I'll believe in him. And if he doesn't, he's just a fraud or maybe he's not even real to start with. You know, there are many Christians who have baby faith, immature faith. How do you know? Because they're always looking for the emotional, the exciting. They're always looking for signs and wonders. And if a church, you know, and, and if, it, if they can't find them, they'll manufacture them. There are churches that, you know, give their people a constant diet of signs and wonders. Um, you, I don't believe that every week people are being raised from the dead or being healed of cancer in these churches, or something else. But it, you, you wouldn't know that if you went to those churches because somebody's always getting healed. Some incredible thing is always happening. Miracles are happening all the time because there are pastors and leaders who know that that kind of thing brings people in. So we have to hype it. I've had people that have gone to churches like this where they believe the Spirit is really moving in those churches. They come to visit our church. I've heard it get back to me. They felt like, they said to me, somebody who brought them, uh, the Spirit of God is not in that church at all. Why is that? Because we're not swinging from the chandeliers. We don't even have chandeliers. <laughs> we're not running up and down the aisles, whooping and hollering and, you know. No, you come here, you open the word, we teach the word. But the Bible never says the Spirit of God is connected to the emotional, emotionalism. The Bible calls the, the word of God the sword of the Spirit. The word, Spirit is connected to God's word. I don't think the Spirit is ever moving more powerfully as when we are teaching the word, and as the Spirit of God is energizing the word of God in people's hearts as they listen, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Their lives are being, uh, are being, hearts are being touched. Their lives are being changed. The word of God is living and powerful. Look, there's a lot of Christians who are young in their faith, and they're young in their faith because they don't go to a church that teaches the word. They're never going to grow. And therefore, their faith is shallow, weak, emotional, and experiential. But just as no child can live on a constant diet of junk food, and I'm not saying true miracles are junk food. If they're a real miracle done by God, that's powerful. I'm talking about all this manufactured stuff that really isn't. It just, it just lies. Come to our church, you know. People are getting raised from the dead. Well, what are they doing in church? I mean, you know. Uh, but you don't know, understand what I mean, right? No child can live on a, on a constant diet of junk food. Neither can a child of God live on a constant diet of signs and wonders, whether they're real or perceived. I mean, Christians need the word of God to grow strong and healthy in their faith, even as Peter said, 1 Peter 2, verse 2. 
as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, when you grow out of infancy into adulthood, you need the meat of the word. Now you need to dig into the word uh, you know, in a, in a deeper way where you're dealing with the deeper things of God. That's how you continue to grow. But I believe in a roundabout way Jesus is addressing this very issue here. He's trying to take this nobleman's weak faith, which was predicated upon the miraculous, and elevate it to a strong faith that was predicated on the word of God. Much like the Samaritans, who believed in his word, uh, and God saved without seeing the Lord Jesus perform many miracles. Look at verse, verses 40 and 41 of John 4. So when the Samaritans had come to him, because the woman by the well of Sychar got saved, right, uh, earlier in John 4, and she runs into town and tells everybody uh, that the prophet, uh, you know, uh, basically um, filled her with living water and so on. And they were like, oh, we don't believe you. And so Jesus eventually came to these people, came to that town. And when the Samaritans had come, well, actually, they came to him, I should say, and they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two, two days, and many more believed because of his own word. He did no miracles. He just gave them the word of God. It's the word of God that is living and powerful. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Miracles are great. I mean, miracles are the frosting on the cupcake, right? Miracles are the salt in the soup. They can't be the main thing. They're just not designed by God to be the main thing. They can, they can make things exciting. They can confirm. Listen, I was telling first service. A miracle will never force a person to believe who doesn't want to believe. A miracle can light the fire of faith if a person is willing to believe. A miracle can fan the faith in a person's heart, Christian now, who's already got faith in their heart. Miracles are great, but they're not designed by God to be the substance, the, the focal point. All right? Now, guys, this nobleman finally uh, probably felt a little rebuked by Jesus when Jesus said in verse 48, unless you people uh, have signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. But Jesus' aim was not to offend this man, but rather to bring him to saving faith. Now, I admit some of God's truth will offend. When you tell people that they're sinners, no matter how good they think they are, they're, they're fallen sinners. They're going to go to hell, and they can't light enough candles and pray enough rosaries and work long enough in the local soup kitchen to change that. They need Jesus Christ. That's offensive to some people. How dare you? I'm a wonderful person. I go to church all the time. I help out in the homeless shelter all the time. Wonderful. But that's not going to save you. The Bible says that people stumble at the preaching of the cross because it's offensive. Just make sure you're not offensive when you share it. Share it in love. But we all know that some people are going to be offended when we share the true gospel. Jesus wasn't, the goal was not to offend this guy. It was to shake him up. It was to show him that, look, what you need is faith based on my word, not based on a miracle. 
that I do. And the Lord Jesus is always trying to lift our faith to new spiritual heights, which he was attempting to do right here with his desperate father and with Thomas in chapter 20. John 4, verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. His faith is starting to germinate now. All right? He didn't say to Jesus, when Jesus said, go your way, your son is healed. All right, you're going to be here tomorrow? I'll run home and check. And if he's really healed, I'll believe. No, he's starting to get with it. Okay? So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went, you know you're growing in your faith. When you need less of the experiential and more the word. The word. So at this point, Jesus elevated this man's faith from having to see a miracle to simply believing the word of the Lord. Again, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Uh, John 4.51 As he was now going down, back to his house, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that'd be about one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he said, and he, and he himself believed in his whole household. So now he moved from seeing as believing to believing as seeing. The story ends not with not only this man's son being physically healed, but the whole family being spiritually healed, which is what miracles are supposed to do. They're supposed to do that. The purpose of miracles is never to entertain, but to point people to Jesus that they might receive him as Savior and Lord and be saved. John tells us that in verses 30 and 31, which we'll close with. And truly, Jesus did many other signs, miracles, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Guys, not all the miracles performed by Jesus are recorded in John's gospel. The Holy Spirit selected a few. John wants us to know that Jesus did so many, so many miracles. He said, I don't think all the books, all the scrolls in the world could contain everything he did. But these I have chosen through the Holy Spirit that you may believe. John organized his gospel, as we have said, around seven I am statements, uh, seven miracles um, that led up to seven I am statements and so on. Very uh, ordered uh, presentation of his gospel. But, uh, and by the way, this is the only book that directly tells us it was written for one purpose, that people might get saved. When somebody comes to you, an unbeliever, and they're starting to get interested in the Bible, I want to start reading the Bible. Don't direct them to the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> or Ezekiel. They're wonderful. But they're seeking. They, they want to know if Jesus is real. Give them the Gospel of John. Let them read John's Gospel because, as God said in Isaiah 55, verse 11, my word will not return to, return to me void. It will accomplish that for which I sent it. 
John, he sent, the Holy Spirit sent the Gospel of John into this world that people might read it and be saved. Were you saying they can't read Philippians and be saved? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this book for sure is an evangelistic treatise proving that Jesus Christ is God by who he is, by what he did, by the words he spoke. And Jesus spoke words that no other person could have ever spoken. In truth, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, will live again. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Buddha never said that. Confucius never said that. Muhammad never said that. Abraham never said that. Jesus said it. Because it's true. It's true. And that's why John orchestrated his, his gospel around the fact that Jesus Christ is the true and living God. He started his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, a title for Christ, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things are made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's how he starts his gospel. Here we go. So this is an incredible... And, and by the way, we're done. Let me just say this. Do you know that the Gospel of John actually ends with verse 31 of chapter 20? We'll say, well, what is chapter 21? It's an epilogue. It's an epilogue. Recounting something that happened prior. When Jesus, you know, prior to, you know, uh, the events of this end of chapter 20. And we'll, we'll get to that because I'm telling you, there is something incredible in chapter 21 that we, we got to study. We'll only take five or six months, but we, we have to know. <laughs> It would be worth five or six months of your time, but we won't take that long. And we will finish up then. God willing, we'll finish up before Jesus returns. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we praise you, Lord, for this incredible book. Your word, 66 books, are incredible, all of them. But thank you for giving us an evangelistic book where the whole purpose of you writing this through John was so that people could read it and be saved. We just thank you, Lord. You are so awesome. And give us all the grace, the strength, the power of your Holy Spirit as we go into all the world, that by your power we might be faithful in preaching the gospel and you might honor that by causing many to have their eyes opened and believe in the truth of the gospel and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Is anybody here today who has not received Jesus into your heart as your Savior and would like to know really what that's all about? Come on up here so we can talk to you and pray with you. And if you need a Bible, we'll give you one. And the rest of you guys, uh, well, every one of you, be careful going home. I see it's slippery out there. But may God give you an awesome week. May he fill you to overflowing with his spirit, that you might be a true witness for his glory 
in these last days, dark days, for Jesus' sake. God bless you guys. Have a great week.